This is The Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You're listening to The Advisory Board. It's wonderful to have you with us. Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, we're here to lend a helping hand. We've been there before, helped thousands of founders, CEOs, organisations and communities all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. I'm Megan Flamer. And I'm Alan Jones. And each week we take on the real issues from entrepreneurs like you and show you how to win the day with kindness and a little tough love. So make sure you send us your questions or write to us about your problems. We also accept collectible LP records and TikTok clips of 1970s television commercials. You can reach us at hello at disrupt.radio or you can reach Megan on LinkedIn or shiny happy healthy on Instagram or me at Alan Startup, Alan at startupfoundercoach.com. And now on with the show. This This is the Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. Not that Alan Jones. Alan, you've dealt a lot with some big companies. What is one of the things that frustrates you the most when you're dealing with giant bureaucracy? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the most frustrating is sort of like a giant bureaucracy is, uh, I, you know, I picture it as like a pyramid, you know, of a pyramid of people and processes. And the most frustrating thing for me is I, is I want to find where the decision makers are in the organization for the sort of decision that I want the organization to make. And it seems like a central purpose of any large organization is to hide the location and the function of those people. They're all hidden behind impenetrable job titles and and mysterious and complex org charts. And the point of being a senior executive in a lot of large organizations seems to be avoiding taking accountability for anything, or at least sole accountability for anything. So I can never just deal with one person and form a relationship. It seems to be that person introduces me to another four or five until I really don't know who my decision maker is. And I think that's the whole point. They all want to be accountable for successes, but not until they're successful. How about you? Oh, yeah, I, I really agree with the people hidden in plain sight. And it's also that thing of being shunted around, you know, like, oh, actually, I know that we've had seven meetings now and you've had to go through exactly what you're after and talk through all of the issues that you're having. But actually, you need to talk to Pete on level three about what's happening there or The other part of it that I've noticed, especially since the COVID times, Mm. is a lot of people moving and changing roles and and leaving. So I just even in the last year, I've had these situations where I've had multiple meetings with people and talking to who I thought was the real decision maker. And then you finally get to a point where maybe you're doing like an MOU or, you know, you're starting to make agreements and then that person leaves and the whole thing is dead in the water. And you're in this situation of like, oh, cool, that was just six months of my life that I can never get back. Yeah, would you say, you know, average tenure in, in a role in a large enterprise used to be 18 months, two years, and now it's six months? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that would be actually interesting for us to... I, I know that one of the big things that we deal with at the Monash Centre is looking at retention and churn rates and, you know, how how to hold on to people. And I, I do think, you know, employment aside, you know, unemployment rates and, and employment rates aside, there is this new guard of people, you know, 
I think people refer to them disparagingly as Gen Z coming through who are just like, I'm not going to put up with this kind of crap and I'm not going to put up with poor working conditions and being expected to do loads of unpaid overtime and being frustrated and unclear about what I'm supposed to be doing. And they're just leaving and there are loads of opportunities for them to work in other industries or to redeploy themselves to work remotely rather than being forced to come into an office. And as a result, the churn is high. It's really difficult. Um, And there's that real generational and culture gap, I think, between people who are used to working in that old school way where you'd come in and punch your card and, you know, do your nine to five or your eight to six. The way we do it around here. And it's always done that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, And now there's these new people who are coming in and being like, well, actually, I work more effectively if I work from home. I don't really want to deal with these problems. And when they're being forced to do otherwise, they are just leaving. Yeah. I was, uh, here's a horror story. I, I was a contractor for a period of two years to one of Australia's largest companies. And in order for them to pay my invoices, I had to be registered on their procurement platform, right? Which was this absolute hellstorm of really bad user experience and documentation and speaking to endless people in customer support who had to refer to somebody else in customer support before you could actually, I left there, I stopped doing that in about 2017. I still get an email every single time they make any sort of change to their procurement system. And I have expressed my dissatisfaction with receiving those emails in so many different formats. Um, So here it is again. Telstra, please leave me alone. I'm no longer a contractor to your business. Stop telling me that I have to go make a change to my details in the procurement platform. It's amazing. 2017, people. It's, It's incredible, though, as well, how much these bigger organizations do not seem to care about the experience of people dealing with them. So, you know, we're also noticing with these bigger organisations that you're needing to talk to them seven or eight times before you get anywhere, whether that is, you know, setting up an invoicing system or, you know, how they would deal with you for onboarding, for example. I don't need a 25-page document and three different meetings and all of these different bits and pieces to try and get to this point. And I think it's it's probably what attracts us both to startups and, and entrepreneurship, you know, getting around so many of those antiquated systems and, and looking at more elegant and easy ways to do things. And yeah. we, we have a letter writer today who is dealing with this woe. I mean, they're really... <laughs> They are really struggling with this. Hi, advisory board. I'm the founder of a marketing startup. We help organisations make sense of their data. We have some B2B customers, sorry, we have some B2C customers, but our business model only really makes sense if we get into bigger companies and work with their data sets. We've had a lot of initial interest, but six months on, the sales cycle and procurement is killing us. And we've just had to let go of a few staff. And from a team of nine, we're really feeling it. How the hell do startups manage to work with bigger companies? And what do I need to do to speed up this process? From show me the data. I love this letter because I have dealt with this. I have dealt with this a lot. I continue to deal with this in my current roles. You know, I have dealt with this in the US and in Asia. 
But I also know someone who has definitely had to deal with this a lot. So I think it's time to pull him into this conversation. Richard Savoy is the co-founder and CEO of Adiona. They use AI to power millions of efficient, lowest carbon deliveries around the world for brands like, you know, little brands like Coca-Cola and uh, Amazon. He's a thought leader on transport, mobility and AI. And today, hopefully a thought leader on enterprise procurement Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I wouldn't say I'm going to be a thought leader, but I, I definitely have some opinions. I think <laughs> you want opinions. How do we help show me the data? What do we do here? Where do you start? Oh, show me the data. I have a lot of sympathy for you. And uh, it's not an easy track to be on. And I think one of the things that really resonated to me about this question is not knowing, show me the data's you know, uh, investment situation, is once a VC falls a bit in love with your product and the problem you're solving, this is one of the first questions that they're going to ask a B2B company is how do you deal with long enterprise cycles? Because they don't have an answer. They're actually looking for the answer and there's no silver bullet for it yet. So uh, every VC is, is always looking to see what is your plan and unfortunately, that plan has to be withstanding the test of time. You have to be set up as a business to persist. And there's lots of other things that, that we can talk about um, and, and other hacks and things that I can, I can uh, maybe chime in on, things that have worked for us or things I've seen work for other people. But the number one thing is you just have to accept your fate. This is something that you're going to have to commit to weathering the storm on. And if you can't commit to that, your business has a very low chance of surviving. So show me the data. Show me the commitment. Okay, Show us the commitment first and then we can try and help. (laughs) So how have you overcome this with Adiona? I mean, and you've been through different iterations with this company, right? Like you've you've tried different things. Can you how did you manage to to break these cycles? Uh, breaking the cycle, you know, it does really re- rely on internal advocates. And I think Alan brought up the great point about decision makers and mentioned internal advocates. And I think there's a reason that decision makers are hidden and obfuscated inside of organizations. So for somebody like Show Me the Data, uh, you know, as I think uh, marketing data analytics startup, I think the last time I looked, there's something like 50,000 MarTech startups, 50,000. They're all competing for the same airtime with the same decision makers. So you have to, again, accept your fate that you're not going to be able to find decision makers easily. That's just the way that the world is set up in big enterprise. What you need to find is the internal advocates who, and I, I sound glib, but I really do mean it. You need to find the people who might get a promotion if your business is really going to help out and be successful with this big organization, right? And I, I, I don't want to make it sound too transactional, but at the end of the day, you do have to think who in this organization can sell this up the chain, sell it across the horizontal parts of the organization, sell it to a CFO, to their boss, whatever, but it's going to look like a hero if this comes to fruition and you deliver a huge return on investment as a, a technology provider for them. And if you can find that person, that will help you navigate the internal workings to the decision makers when the time is right. Where do those sorts of people hang out, Richard? Are, are they the sort of people that come along to industry conferences and ask intelligent questions? Or, you know, I can go scrolling through LinkedIn for, for hours trying to find people. But again, those impenetrable job titles make it really hard to find. Where do I find these people? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question because sometimes they're the obvious choice. Sometimes they are a C-suite person who's just really excited and looking for new technology or solutions, right? But um, oftentimes they're not. And so when you're looking for them, I think this is, uh, again, a bit of advice that uh, may not may not be wanted by a startup, but it's don't look like a startup because most of these big enterprises, they talk about working with startups and new technology. And those are the people that tend to go to the conferences and the events. They're people who are interested in technology and the ecosystem, but they're very rarely well aligned with the decision makers. Um, and again, no hard, fast rules, because we found customers through conferences and events and stuff and internal advocates that then led to, to business there. That's for sure. But I think um, the, the easier way to find them is to look for the people aligned in the organization that are trying to solve the problem that you solve. So that may be through direct outreach on LinkedIn, you you know, using Sales Navigator to look through titles, and it may be through reading people's profiles in detail to figure out who's really on the, the front line of, of these things. Um, but those internal advocates tend to be people that um, that have something to gain in changing the organization and disrupting it, not people that are afraid of changing it because that could be a bad look for them. How successful have you been with Sales Navigator? Because I, as as someone who is on the receiving end of much of those, hello, first name, um, you know, we would really like to solve this particular problem for you. Would you like to schedule a call with us? You're welcome. You know, those terrible emails. Have you been successful in, in using that and using LinkedIn as a bit of a channel for yourself? Definitely not. <laughs> uh, definitely not. But not, not in the way you might think, because we are very successful with LinkedIn. Uh, and you bring up a great point, which is something that we can talk about. It's still relationship based. And that's, again, the biggest difference between separating somebody from five dollars to to download your app or your Chrome extension versus trying to extract 10, 20, 100 thousand dollars for an, from an enterprise. That is very relationship based. It's based on trust. It's based on track record. And you cannot simply do passive marketing or uh, you know, blast out marketing to to get those types of relationships. You really do need to, again, weather the test of time, be willing to put in the resources to do one-on-one individualized outreach. And there are a lot of tools that you can use to do that faster. But I think some startups do get caught in that trap where they try to use an automation that isn't personalized enough. You ever see those those animated movies like um, what's the one with the the train? where it's like the CGI is almost lifelike. Yeah, yeah it's Polar Express. Polar Express, uh, right, yes. exactly. Yeah. But it's not quite there, and so it immediately actually makes you have the, the opposite reaction of what you want. Yeah. And so if you send out messages to LinkedIn or email or whatever that seem personalized, but it triggers the person to think, actually, I think this is from an automation, you've probably lost them completely. There's no point in even following up. Yes, yeah, it's the equivalent of the the Nigerian prince email, where it's yeah. like you seem really warm, and I'm I feel like maybe we've met before, but I'm also pretty sure that you don't have forty five million dollars stashed in a an apartment somewhere that you really want to share with me for altruistic reasons. I just get a feeling about that. I'm not sure why. This is Radio. This is the Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones.
It's great to have you with us here on the advisory board. We're speaking with the CEO and co-founder of Adiona. You can find them at adionatech.com, dealing with all things logistics and carbon saving and, you know, saving the planet, what Richard calls the triple win. Richard Savoy, thank you so much for staying with us so that we can really answer this letter deeply. Richard, you do a bit of um, thought leadership, though, and 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 you know what channels for your you know um, think pieces that work work well. Sorry, and I don't mean think pieces in a negative way. Like you know, you will come out and talk about these are the issues facing the industry, and these are the challenges that are ahead of us in the future, and these are some of the changes happening right now that you might not be aware of. What sort of channels work for you as a as a, as a medium when reaching out to try and find those decision makers? Great question. And there's something just to preface that, but I will answer it directly to preface that. um, The other thing that's really relevant is timing. And so enterprises have lots of problems that they're trying to solve. They have projects that are budgeted already. And it's very disheartening to start talking to an organization and they seem like they really like you. And then they say, it's just not the right time. Come back in six months. And and I think that's actually alluded to in the in the email to you as well from show me the data. Um, so that's where thought leadership becomes a critical piece in the enterprise sales process, because in my mind, again, I like to distill things down to really simple things that are the, the most valuable, which is get them on your email list. You need to find ways to get these potential customers, influencers, internal advocates, who, whoever, honestly, get them into your funnel and get them on your email list because, and, and that's where using thought leadership via socials, Things like this, you know, being invited to guest on podcasts where they might look you up after, um, radio programs, anything else where you can drive them to a call to action that gets them to convert onto your email list, that should be your number one priority. And that's where thought leadership really drives value and amplifies exponentially because they've bought into the fact that they like to hear from you. There's something valuable that you're providing in information or, or guidance or whatever, and they want to stick around for it. And so we have, you know, routinely 25% plus open rates on our emails. We have, you know, 0.01% unsubscribe rates because those people have opted in to the idea that we are going to provide value, whether they're a customer or not. And then your brand is in front of them every month. And when they are ready and the timing is right in that big enterprise cycle, they come back. That's awesome. We wouldn't have had you on the show today if, if, if there wasn't a compounding interest in what you do out there in the, in the industry, right? We've seen you pitch at startup events. We've seen you talk at business conferences. We've read what you've written on various channels. Um, and so we have a high degree of confidence in inviting you in as a guest on our, on our show. You know, when somebody says, oh, we want to you know, have somebody in to talk about B2B sales and enterprise sales, we know exactly who to call. And so that, you know, that journey started a few years ago, and now it's, it's getting some dividends, you're getting some airtime. That's, that's, uh, that's a challenging thing. And again, as you say at, at the beginning, like you and your investors have to be bought in to the long-term game. If you don't have the backing, if you don't have the patience and the time, you're not going to make it, right? Exactly right. And and it's very difficult for a B2C company that's used to faster transaction cycles to cope with that. And so again, you know, looking at the, the email from uh, Show Me The Data, they alluded to having some B2C customers and that's great because again, I'm all for getting runs on the board and learning and, and figuring out how you're going to pivot. But if they do truly believe that they need to be B2B, it's about investing in that long-term and the long-term relationships. 
So what does it look like when you're, let's just assume Show Me the Data is dealing with investors or VC, for example, how do you have that conversation? You know, especially if you're in that earlier stage of, of getting set up and figuring out, you know, what partnerships you're creating and how to get in front of those big clients. But then, you know, rather than just going to a VC and being like, yeah, but the procurement cycle's killing us. It's like really long. And we were talking to this guy and it took us nine months. You know, how do you have the conversation of how you're going to close those deals? Oh, that's a great question because oh, it's not an easy one. I, a quick story. I remember one of the most prolific VCs in Australia. Uh, I had a meeting with them. And keep in mind that we're supply chain tech, we're logistics tech. It's the most boring tech aside from <laughs> reg tech, maybe. Um, you know, and it's it's a bunch of people in warehouses and driving trucks are, are our bread and butter, which I love. But I remember this VC saying, well, we really look for companies that have virality in their marketing. It was like virality in, in your marketing for supply chain tech. You, you, that's just that's so not, sexy. That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing sexy about what we do. Um, that said, once you're on the inside of it, it's really awesome and exciting, but it's not the type of thing that people are passing to their friends and you know posting about on socials. It doesn't work that way. So you have to, number one, realize that some of the investors have no idea. They're challenging you with questions because they are just as curious about it as you are. And they're hoping that you've figured it out. And that's why they'll want to invest in you is because you have some kind of a credible plan. So it's not some kind of a test. It's not some kind of a, a thing where they're trying to catch you out on not having a plan. They're legitimately wondering if you've got a strategy and tactics that will help you overcome these sales cycles. So I'll give you an example and, and you know a really brief story of how we've done it um, in the early days, which is that we decided, um, you know, Again, in the go-to-market world, your passive marketing and product-led growth strategies only work for small, less expensive uh, products. For B2B, on and especially as the contract sizes get bigger, you need to focus on account-based growth and having humans that will build the relationships. Cool. But we identified one of the big pain points in the gap between a customer is interested and wants a demo to then delivering a demo and converting it into a sale was the transformation of data from their format to our format, which is a very classical problem in all sorts of you know um, information businesses. And so we built a solution into our product to automatically use machine learning and convert those data sources across. It sped up our demo time by 5x and it sped up our integration times with those customers if they did choose to come and and come on board by like 10x mm. and so those were the types of things that you can do when you're talking to investors to say we're in investing in building technology to speed up the sales cycle mm. that's something that they get really excited about because they they know that you're really thinking hard about it and you understand the, the pain points and delivering on it as well, right? Like it's having those conversations. It's being able to come back to an investor and be like, listen, this is what we were hoping to do. This is where we've fallen short. This is what worked. This is what didn't. Like it is having those ongoing conversations about, you know, how are you delivering the value? How are you making sure that you do what you promised or didn't, you know, owning those pieces of the process? 
and everybody wants to see that you're measuring and experimenting and doubling down on what works. So being able to do that from a sales cycle approach as well, when you don't have big numbers to rely on, because that's another problem is that you, you don't have the sheer volume of customers or potential customers to extract good statistically significant data about what's working and what's not. It's all very anecdotal and subjective. So anytime you can dig in to data and, and say, well, you know, we, we know how long it took to do this piece of work that we've had to do over and over and over again, just to court these customers. And we've contracted that down, you know, any examples that you can do to take a key point, not the whole experience, but a key point of it and squish it down. I think everybody will be happy about that. Yeah. And that's showing improvement over time, right? Which is yeah. so valuable. It's great to have you with us here on the advisory board. We're speaking with the CEO and co-founder of Adiona. You can find them at adionatech.com. Reading between the lines for Show Me the Data, you know, I, I can see that they feel pretty discouraged, obviously. They've just had to let some people go. They feel frustrated. You know, they um, I didn't read this out probably as, as strongly as it's written, but, you know, the sales and procurement cycle is all caps, killing us, you know, and they're letting go of a few staff, you know. Um, you must have been through a lot of ups and downs as you've built Adiona. How do you manage that, you know, that cycle and and how do you manage the ebbs and flows of, you know, when things are working and when they're not? Especially with small teams, uh, I distill it down to, again, another glib phrase, which is a fast no is better than a slow yes. Yeah. And to unpack that a little bit, there's also the maybe in there. So it's a fast no is much better than a slow yes because it's a big market. There's lots of companies out there. If there's 50,000 MarTech companies, you know, there's a lot of customers too. So it's just as important to screen out the ones that are going to spend time with you but not convert to dollars as it is to spend that time with the ones who maybe will convert when the timing is right. So again, there's a bit of process. I can't advise this company because I don't know enough. But the idea is that um, if you're just not getting good vibes and it doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere in the next few weeks or months or whatever, cool. Figure out how to get them into your funnel and on your email list and then move on to the next. And, and that's the only way that you can survive. It really, truly is the only way that you can survive. And we would not have survived had we doubled down on investing time in customers that were that were. A really slow, yes. Um, but it's important. That's where the maybe comes in is is because that's when you want them in your funnel for for thought leadership and, and whatnot. Because when the time is right, if it ever gets to be right, um, they'll come back. But more importantly, if they are advocates of what you're doing and they still believe it's an interesting thing, they will pass it on to their friends and talk about it and, and, and whatnot, which might lead to business eventually. So, you know, as you've gone through these processes and you know, I, I love the idea of, of the fast no. And I think that's one of the things, you know, all of us have worked, you know, as that straddle between bigger organisations and startups and looking at how they, a, a good company can be great with a startup and help them get off the ground or really use a startup to solve a problem that they have. What advice would you give to companies who are trying to partner with startups, you know, whether that's an innovation project or trying to figure out how they would disrupt their business or could be disrupted with a startup? 
you know, what would you get them to do so that they could be better with dealing with, you know, smaller companies? Oh, yeah. Well, the commitment to working with the startups has to go beyond that one internal advocate. So if it's a corporate that's approaching startups and wants to work with them, it can't be just a small team of of really excited humans, uh, which it's great to be excited humans, but you need to get buy-in across the organization. And we've seen that from, from multiple sides because we've seen innovation programs and whatnot that went nowhere because they just didn't have cross-functional support and people weren't incentivized to spend their time. So say for instance, and um, you know, Alan named and shamed, I'll, I'll say that this may or may not be the same organization. Mm-hmm. May not, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, invested a lot in startups, but uh, nobody in the actual organization was incentivized with their time to spend with the startups. They had to volunteer and take time away from what they were getting paid for which is a risk, right? Like, you know, you've got KPIs that you're you're needing to hit and somebody comes to you and says, oh, can you spend some time with this startup, blah, 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 we were supporting them. And you go, yeah, but that isn't in my remit. And so I'm taking time away from the job that I get paid for, that you can't have that kind of disconnect in the organization and expect the startups to be successful in the organization. It's just not gonna work. And I've seen it on the other side where the whole organization commits they communicate internally really effectively. They get people excited. They carve out time for them to spend with the startups and say, we support you to go and spend this time. We're not going to penalize you. And that's when things really take on a very different um, color and, and things really happen. I love an unsexy business because I think you're solving a very real problem for very many people and you're doing it within the bounds of making a difference with the climate and making a difference with logistics, like problems that we all have. Can you tell us a bit more about how you do that? Because I think it would also be great for Show Me the Data to understand, like, how do you even talk about something as esoteric as this in a way that lands for an organisation? Oh, that's so good. So good. Such a good question because our journey and and uh, you'll both remember this because we've known each other for so long. But uh, in the early days, we didn't talk much about sustainability and climate as part of our core value proposition. Mm. The world was different. Organizations were different. It was in our ethos. It's in our name. But uh, it wasn't the top bullet point of what corporates were looking for. They were looking to save money. They were looking to be more efficient. And we said, well, you know what? That's that's fine. And there is a net benefit. We call it the triple win, the win for the business, the win for us as an economy, and the win for the environment. So we could get behind that. And we didn't need to be, I suppose, um, advocates or we didn't need to sound like evangelists. Evangelist is the word. We didn't need to be climate evangelists to make the impact that we wanted to make. And that became really important in navigating these long sales cycles and the enterprises because we had to just swallow our pride a little bit and say, yes, we want these outcomes, but at the end of the day, we need to meet the customer where they're at. And I, I, I think that's a really important lesson that we learned the hard way and aligns again with what I mentioned about not looking too much like a startup and branding and all that. You, you have to really look at the problem you're solving, look at the benefits, but then mold those benefits into the language of the customer that you can solve it for. Figure out, and it's different for every company and every problem, but morph it into something that really speaks their language. I had a boss, I remember my first medical device job, and you know I was dealing a lot with these um, ISO standards. And he said, just learn the language of these standards, learn all the vocabulary, and you'll get a job anywhere in this industry. 
And I think startups are, are kind of the same. It's like you have these disruptors who come from inside, they come from outside, but they often rely on a big cross-sectional team of people who, who maybe not aren't too familiar with the domain of the big enterprise. And they're going up to talk to somebody who's got 20 or 30, even 40 years of domain experience inside of a company and expecting them to meet in the middle. The Venn diagram is so tiny there <laughs> that you have to do the prep. You have to do the work, learn the language. And actually, you didn't ask it, but I'll, I'll volunteer this. Yes. Classic conundrum of when to hire salespeople. And there's always this argument over when to hire salespeople, hire two at a time. When do you scale up that, that sales uh, function? And uh, I think it really simply comes down to, to that is if you're investing in salespeople that don't speak the language or that can't learn the language of the customers they're selling to, it's pointless. They either have to know it already or you have to be willing to invest the time for them to really learn that language. And then you can worry about the evangelism later and worry about all the other things later. But you can at least build that relationship authentically because you are really understanding each other's problems. That's so great. And I, I love the idea that you're really using the language of the organization. Like ultimately, especially if you are the the tiny fish, the goldfish, you need to be able to speak to the big fish, you know, and and to meet them where they're at. Going in guns blazing with innovation and disruption is scary to an organization, to someone who has to deliver their KPIs or has to meet a budget or has to solve a particular problem. I think risk mitigation is one of the biggest things I'm hearing in what you're saying. Definitely. Uh, and, and because of what we do, it's, it's logistics, it's real people, real humans out on the roads. There's a, a safety issue. Um, and that always comes up in the conversations. And obviously, we didn't know anything about it in the early days. This is a thing, thing called chain of responsibility, where you as a shipper, as a manufacturer, you're responsible for everything that happens downstream um, to the product getting delivered to the door of the, the store or the customer. And similarly, in the sustainability sphere, we have scope one, two, and three emissions, right? And scope three emissions, you may you don't have direct responsibility over, but you're, you're still responsible for them. And so you have to start to think about things like that in the corporate landscape. Um, modern slavery acts, um, you know, uh, using raw materials that are from conflict zones, like all these things that enterprises have to think about. You have to think about them too. You may not necessarily have a solution for them, but you gotta speak the language so that when the question comes up, they feel like you're polished and prepared. And again, you don't need to necessarily solve that, but you can speak the language and they trust you. Yeah, that's amazing. All right. So what have we learned today? What can we what can we really take back to? <laughs> what advice can we really send in yeah, terms of Yeah, so show me the data. Forward. Obviously, they're dealing with long procurement cycles. I've heard that partnerships and relationships really matter, right? So you're talking longer term and maybe might be someone that you could – you know, nurture for a long time, add them to your email list. I love that, that you would really own the email list and make sure that you are constantly having those conversations, right? Yeah, definitely. Get them and, and think about what content is useful for them, not what makes you look good. Mm. And I'll, I'll give you the recipe that I found over, again, three years of working, experimenting with emails is... I do it the way I like newsletters to come in, which is some industry news, stuff that I think would be relevant to them beyond anything to do with us, but really hits like, oh, if they didn't see this on LinkedIn or in another newsletter, this is something that they might be interested in, right? And that works every time. That always gets the most clicks out of every email that we send out. 
Um, and then think about, okay, is there some new product features or some new other stuff that we can do? But again, be humble. Don't make it about yourselves because uh, you, you have to build the trust that you're actually interested in the same things. Yeah, that's great. And then also risk mitigation. So meeting them yes. where they're at, having the conversations with them and solving for their problem because they don't really care to solve your problem. <laughs> You've got to be the ones who bring the problem solving to the table, make it easy for them, make your processes slick, be organised. And I've heard you say this a few times, don't come at it like, we're this scrappy little startup. Like, actually be a player in the field. Like, show up as we are the solution to a problem that you are dealing with and and here's how we can deliver it. So be really solution-oriented. Yeah. Yeah, and until you have the credibility of having a few customers that you can present a case study around, it's exponentially harder. Um, so really the focus, again, B2B Enterprise is get that first case study, get that big customer and do it by pitching and being looking bigger than you are, even if it's you in your bedroom, look bigger, look more professional, get that first case study and then wash, rinse and repeat. That's amazing. Richard Savoy, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. This was really fun. The amazing Richard. He's the co-founder and CEO of Adiona. You can find them at adionatech.com, checking out how they're saving the planet with a triple win uh, in the realm of logistics and deliveries and working with enormous companies in the world. And Richard is, as we said, an amazing thought leader. So do follow along with the things that he writes about and speaks about. He's solving big problems and always happy to help startups along the way as well. So we're very, very pleased to have you here on the advisory board. We'll Thank be, you so much. We'll be back very shortly with more advice. But if you have a question for us, make sure you hit us up at disrupt.radio. You can find us both on LinkedIn. Just make sure that it sounds like a really personalised email and not something <laughs> that was written by a Nigerian prince offering a bit of money. Um, and you can find us on all of the socials as well. So make sure that you stay in touch with us here. I'm Megan Flamer. I'm Alan Jones. And this is the Advisory Board. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Simon Reynolds. The Business Lounge. From humble beginnings and using very little initial startup capital, he has built one of the greatest travel companies in the world, Flight Centre. Graham Turner, welcome to the Business Lounge. Carolyn Creswell, co-founder of Carmen's Fine Foods, welcome to the Business Lounge. He started Seek with two friends at a time when there were virtually no successful Australian internet companies. Matt, great to have you here in the Business Lounge. Check in with business guru Simon Reynolds in the Business Lounge. Live on DAV+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.